The children are dismissed for uh, musical practice. The rest of you, please open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 6. There are two inserts in the bulletin that we'll be looking at this morning. Um, Zechariah, chapter 6. seems to me that every good story, every good piece of drama demands good closure, good climax, finish. I don't know about you, but I've read stories, seen movies that start off well, and yet the climax is an anticlimax. The end is poorly done. And this morning, we're going to see the eighth and final night vision. This first section of the book of Zechariah that spans chapters 1 to chapter 6, the final climactic night vision will be here. If you remember, this section, chapters 1 to 6, is is a sandwich. On either end, there is real-time speech. Zechariah in in chapter 1 and the first few verses calling the people to repentance. Next week, Pastor Daniel will close this six-chapter section with the crowning of Joshua the high priest. Not a vision, but an actual real-time event. So these real-time events sandwich the eight night visions that occur and are given to the prophet Zechariah. Today we will finish the eighth night vision, which brings to a climax and a crescendo the visions. And then next week we will close out the section as Pastor Daniel teaches us the word. And I think what we'll find is This is a fitting crescendo. This is a fitting climax. That God is a master storyteller, as he is a master of everything, and giving these visions ends on a high note. The vision of the four chariots. And so I'd invite you to read with me Zechariah chapter 6. We're looking at the first eight verses. Zechariah chapter 6. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold... Four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them. The dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who have gone toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. An interesting vision. And before we look into this, I think you need to see the similarity in this vision to the very first vision. If you remember, if you turn back in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 1, so this vision, we have four chariots. The first vision, verses chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, is similar. And, and so this forms sort of a coda bookends to the visions themselves. We we end up where we started in a sense. Chapter 1, 
of Zechariah, not Haggai. Chapter 1, verse 8. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Do you see the similarities? In both visions, horses figure prominently, four, four of them, colored horses, the colors given. They're both units of patrol. There's patrolling going on. In, in the first vision, the dual themes of these visions are announced. God's returning in love and in comfort and in mercy to Jerusalem, his intent to rebuild the temple, his intent to prosper the people, that they'll overflow. And the second theme, his anger at the nations that have oppressed them. And if you hold up this, this sheet, we'll walk through, we're going to sort of talk through the, the visions to see where we've come. Because if this eighth vision is the climax, if it is the close, if it is the other bookend, then it's going to interact and it's going to sum up all that's come before. So the first vision, and, and this just gives the, the eight visions on the backside, for anyone who's interested, is, is a list of the historical background that we covered in the first two messages. Um, we're not going to be looking at that this morning, but I figured if there's an empty half sheet, might as well use it to good use. Um, if the, if the tree's already been killed, you might as well, you know, um, make it some good use. So the first vision is the horsemen among the myrtles. And we see from that the dual theme, God has returned in love and compassion to Jerusalem, and he is angry at the nations who harmed him. And that sort of sets the, sets the tone of what's to come. The second vision, the horns and the craftsmen. Remember, the end of chapter one, four horns are raised up to terrify Israel and Four craftsmen come along and, and cut them down to size, knock them down. And from that we learned that God has appointed both the powers that will oppress his people and the means of their ultimate downfall. That God is the one who is sovereign over human history, has appointed, this tied in with Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the four world powers, God has appointed these horns, these symbols of strength and political might, but he's also sovereignly appointed their destruction, their downfall. He, he is the one who lifts up. He is the one who casts down. Israel gets from this this notion that, yes, right now you're being hard done by. Right now you're being oppressed. Right now you're terrified, as it were, of the Persians. But don't worry. This is all part of my plan. And I'm raising them up and I will dash them down. 
The the third vision, the man with the measuring line, had the dual message that God will bless and restore Jerusalem. That's the picture. The, the, The rebuilding will occur, and of consequence, a call to flee Babylon who was to be judged. Flee from her, he says. Flee from her. Come back to Jerusalem. Because remember, only 50,000 Jews returned of millions who had gone into exile. And then the fourth vision, and and the center of the visions are these two chapter-long visions centering around individuals. There's a structure to these visions. Chapter 3 centers on Joshua the high priest. Chapter 4 on Zerubbabel. And both the, the political and the religious leader are affirmed and installed by God. In chapter 3, the the wonderful passage about the cleansing of Joshua. God has chosen and cleansed and installed Joshua as his high priest. And consequently, Israel is a nation. Here's their religious head. And God promises to to remove the sin of the people in a single day. Then in chapter 4, the golden lampstand representing the, the power and the glory of God's work, and how, the emphasis being how will the fuel, how will the power to get what needs to be done be accomplished? Well, by God's Spirit. Zerubbabel, as he trusts in God's Spirit, will succeed. That God has abundantly, super abundantly, embarrassingly, lavishly supplied the power, seen in the two olive trees that the lamp Sam is hardwired, hooked up to. A lampstand bigger and brighter than anything in the temple. And then, in chapter 5, we saw the the vision of the flying scroll. And we saw that even though judgment had been announced for the nations, that God was going to begin by cleansing his people. And this was a warning. His word was going to go out. Judgment will begin with God's people and by his word. And then, last week, the woman in the basket, that ultimately the Lord was going to gather up Israel's sin and wickedness and cleanse her, be removed from her, returned to its source. So we've seen God's intent to bless and rebuild the people, rebuild the temple, his his anger at the nations, his declaration that they will be punished, specifically Babylon, Babylon being the particular nation in view of who came and gathered up Israel and took her away. And here, all this comes to a close in this vision. We're going to look at it in, in three parts. Um, So let's dive in to the four chariots. Number one, the vision of the four chariots. The vision of the four chariots. And what I'm doing is I'm breaking up the text along the lines in the text. So in the first three verses, we have a description of what Zechariah sees. And then, as is usual, Zechariah asks a question. If you remember with the, the woman in the basket, where are they taking her? Or what is this? Frequently, the the various questions he asks. Here, in verse 4, what are these, my Lord? And then an explanation is given. That'll be our second point. And then finally, the Lord God himself cries out in verse 8. And and we'll look at that as its third point. So that's sort of the division of the text. The vision itself, the explanation of the vision, and then its climax, its, its main point. So we're looking at the vision of the four chariots. Now, this is closely tied to the first vision. When we've looked at some of the similarities, now I want to point out some of the dissimilarities, the differences between this vision and the other vision. First difference, the horses are differently colored, and notably, they pull chariots. In the first vision, the horses, it was a reconnaissance mission. What was emphasized was the covert speed, the 
of, of a survey team going out patrolling the earth, coming back with a military report. Commander, the nations are at ease. We've, we've scouted them out. And so it's at night, it's in a myrtle grove, they're reporting to a head, of fig, to a head figure, the angel of the Lord. Here, that, that's, that's all different. The, the horses are different colored. I mean, these are different horses. What, what they represent are different things. The colors in the first vision were red, red, sorrel, and white. Sorrel is pink. The colors here are red, black, white, and mottled, the SV has, or spotted. Um, and a lot of people have tried to, to fit these together to make them be the same group or to link it with the four horsemen in Revelation 6. The colors don't exactly line up here either. I think the point is this. These, these aren't the same. They're not identified as the same. Why tell us the colors? Well, one of the things we get is they're not, it's not a one-to-one match. The, the point isn't that these beings, these horses, these chariots represent specific people. Notice that Zechariah doesn't ask, who are these? Whereas in Revelation 6, it's, it's death, it's pestilence, it's, it's disease, it's famine. Very personalized people. Here, it's, these, are, these are agents of the Lord going out. So they're different in color and they pull chariots. Now, significance now goes from one of speed and surveillance, emphasizing the Lord's omniscience, to now one of military power. Remember, the, the predominant name for God in this book is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And here we see the, the Old Testament equivalent to a tank. I mean, a chariot is the military vehicle par excellence in the Old Testament. Nations that had them had mobile battle platforms moving around. Israel constantly um, was being oppressed by the Philistines who had chariots to read about. And so this is a picture of power and military might. And, and that connects even further with the fact that the horses are told that they are very strong. They are very strong horses. So one of the differences, different colored, making it clear these aren't identical. It's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. These aren't the same horses, the same riders as chapter 1. Two, we've got a shift of emphasis from covert reconnaissance and speed to might and power. Another difference, their mission is just beginning. When we, when we show up at the first vision, it's interesting the juxtaposition. The very first vision shows something concluding. The, the patrols are reporting back. They've done their patrol. They're finished their patrol. They're finished their work. They're now reporting. Here, we see something beginning. We see, verse 1, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between the mountains. And they come out from between the mountains, and then they are sent off. So something is beginning, as opposed to something ending. And third, note that their place of departure and their destination is different. In chapter 1, they end up at a myrtle grove. They've come from patrolling the whole earth. Here, they come from between these two mountains. And even though they are said to patrol the whole earth, we get specific detail of specifically where they're going. The black and white horses are going to the country to the north. The spotted horses are going south. And we don't hear another word of the red horses. So those are some of the significant differences. So where, where are they coming from then? They're coming from two mountains. Almost certainly these two mountains are Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Almost certainly, these are the mountains referred to. The mountain of God. They're coming from the presence of the Lord, we read a little later. Verse 5, the angel said, These 
are they going out to the four winds after presenting themselves before the Lord of the earth? So where they're coming from is meant to be understood is from the presence of God. So it makes sense then that these mountains, one is Mount Zion, the other is the Mount of Olives, because Mount Zion is where God metaphorically dwells. They're coming from his presence. Okay, they're bronze. And commentators are spilling a lot of ink trying to figure out, does bronze symbolize strength? Or does it tie into the temple? I, I don't think so. I think the picture here is, is one that, that fits the context very well indeed. This is, as the sun is rising in the west, the mountains get lit up like bronze. We've come to the end of eight night visions. We know this happens at night back in chapter one. I saw in the night... Chapter 4, verse 1, the angel who talked with me came again and woke me. So this has been taking place in one night. And here, the final vision, we see dawn breaking. And as dawn breaks, four chariots come out from between these mountains. It's dramatic. You see what I'm talking about? The drama, the climax that's taking place as these mountains are lit up like bronze. And the chariots are coming from between them, out, beginning a mission, not ending a mission. And if I'm right about the mountains being the Mount of Olives and Mount Zion, then this also fits because that means the valley they're coming in, the Kidron Valley, is also referred to as the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which is biblically where the Battle of Armageddon takes place. In Joel chapter 3, 1 to 2, and verse 12, this is where God will gather the nations. So they're riding out in this valley that biblically is where the final climactic showdown takes place. God's symbols of his military power and force and strength are riding through the valley that ultimately all nations will gather in to do war with God. And as I've said, this is the climax and culmination of the cycle of eight visions. Something is up. And you just picture the drama. He looks up his eyes, and there are these lit-up mountains. And coming between them lit-up mountains are strong, powerful chariots. It's a dramatic scene. It's a dramatic scene. So we've seen the vision of the four chariots, which begs the question that Zechariah then asks in, um, in verse 4. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked to me, what are these, my Lord? Now again, these aren't personified like the horsemen in Revelation. Or in Revelation, they're given names. He doesn't ask who are these, what are these? Again, I pointed out that the colors differentiate from the vision in chapter 1. These, the, the, what's important is not what each color specifically represents. We're going to learn these are simply the four winds, or these are the four angels, or the four spirits. That's not the issue. The issue is what they represent. So we're looking at point two, the identity of the four chariots. The identity of the four chariots. I've seen the vision, now we look at their identity. And there's some difficulty here in, in different texts. If you have a different translation of the ESV, your Bible might say something different here. This is another place. Where's Mike? This is another place, Mike, where I disagree with how the ESV renders this. Um, it says here, the angel responds, they are going out to the four winds of heaven. A more literal reading is these are the four winds or the four spirits. Um, the blank here is the chariots are spirits. Um, the word for spirit can mean spirit or wind or even breath or life. Um, it's the same word for what God breathed into Adam. Um, they're spirits. The reason that's important is there's going to be a play on words down in verse 8 where these chariots have set God's spirit at rest. So it's important to identify that they're almost certainly angelic beings. 
These are spiritual beings um, who serve before the Lord, which is another clue into the fact that we're dealing with angelic spiritual beings. That, that phrase, serving before the Lord, is one used in Job 1.6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Job 2.1. And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Notice that then with verse 5. These are they going out to the four winds after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. These are spirit beings, angels, who normally serve, present themselves in front of the Lord. They've been sent out now on a mission. They've been sent out on a mission. Notice also that they are strong. Twice we're told they are strong. In verse 4, all of them strong. Verse 7, when the strong horses came out. And again, the emphasis now has shifted in the first vision from covert intelligence, speed, to one of raw power. These are the armies, the Lord of hosts. They're not going out at sunset or at night in the dark, but as day breaks, here they come down the valley. They're strong and they are eager. Look at that in verse 7. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient. You can picture the, the horse sort of, you know, kicking the ground and getting ready, chomping on the bit, wanting to go. These are strong, powerful horses, and they are excited. They are eager. They're not, they're not timid. They want to get going. They're raring to go. Strong and eager. And it's this picture of God's military power. These, these forces of military supremacy, the Lord of hosts armies are strong and they are zealous and they're ready to go and they're excited. And they just get, let us go. Come on. Give us permission. Let us go. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth strong and they're eager. And they're going out to patrol the whole earth. Notice that phrase, whole earth. It, it occurs a number of times here. Um, they present themselves, verse 5, before the Lord of all the earth. Because what's, what's going to happen is we're going to see the Lord's dealing with other nations. And again, this may be obvious to us, but the Israelites lived in a day where there were national gods. Gods who only governed certain areas. So Dagon, the fish god, might might deal with one particular city and, and Baal might deal with another particular region or area. The Lord, who is the God of Israel, is the God of all the earth. And he's going to go deal with the pagan nations and their pagan gods. The Lord of all the earth. These are patrols that don't just patrol Israel. They patrol all the earth. They're going out to patrol the whole earth. But even though they're said to patrol the whole earth, which is in part what links them to chapter 1's patrol, we get given specific destinations. First, we see the black and the white go north to Babylon. They go north to Babylon. Well, how do I know it's Babylon? It just says they go north. Go back to chapter 2. Here we're told, verse 6, the chariot with the black horse goes north, goes towards the north country. And in chapter 2, we're told what the north country is. Verse 6, up, up. Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So, 
The land to the north in this series of visions is Babylon. It's also the land, if you read a little further, that God has declared judgments coming for. So it fits. It makes sense. Here's some riders going off to do something. We'll get to what they're going to do, but it's kind of intimidating. Angelic beings in chariots with strong, zealous horses that are stomping at the ground, ready to go. Two of them get sent north. Keep in mind, one angel destroyed Sennacherib's entire army in a night. Here's two sets of horses and chariots going north. It doesn't look good for Babylon. <laughs> look at verse 8 of chapter 2. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you'll know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So specifically, Babylon has been called out in this series of visions for judgment to come. Now, we're not all the nations are to get dealt with, but this is part of the reason why the patrols that patrol the whole earth, we're told two of them are going up north. And we've been told previously that up north means Babylon. The dappled or spotted horses head south to what must be Egypt. Remember, there's, there's nobody to the west. There's just a big ocean to the west. And to the East is a desert so great we couldn't even cross it recently in Operation Desert Storm and Shield. So Israel really only has to deal with, with people on the north and the south. Which then begs the question, what happens to the red horses? I mean, did you notice how they drop out? We're told specifically in verse 2, the first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, the fourth chariot dappled horses. Verse 6, the chariot with black horses goes towards the north country and the white one goes after them. And the dappled ones go towards the south country. Well, what happened to the red horses? Well, here's my suggestion. I think it's the right one. The red remains in Jerusalem. Now again, they come out from Zion. We're told three of the sets of horses go north and south. I'm going to assume if we're not told anything further, the red ones stay put. That also fits, if you turn back to chapter 1, with the vision in chapter 1. Verse 8, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing, so he's stationary. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. Behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my lord? The angel who talked to me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. They've just come back in. He was stationary. They've returned to him. So in the first vision, you've got one horseman the red horse, who's been here from the beginning, and the other horses have just showed up to report. So it fits, it makes sense to me, that when these horses come out, one of them stays put and the others go out. It fits the pattern. Three horses out patrolling, one horse stationary in Israel, in Jerusalem. I think that the point of that being that while these military powers are going to deal with the nation to the north and the nation to the south, God is also protecting his people. He's not leaving them unprotected. This red-horsed chariot, the first one out, stays put. Stays put. And that must be an encouragement to Israel. 
to know not only is something about to happen to their neighbors to the north and their neighbors to the south, but that God is protecting them as well. That, I believe, is the identity of the four chariots. But all of this then begs the ultimate question, to what point? What is the purpose of the four chariots? That's your third blank, the purpose of the four chariots. What, what is all this about? And for that, I want to look to the part where the, the Lord God himself cries out. In a vision that is the culmination of eight visions, I want to look to the high point in that eighth vision to get my marks from. And sure enough, in verse 8, what do we see? Then he said, then he cried to me. This is the most emphatic, loudest, clearest point of the vision. Here's the so what. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So we've got patrols for the whole earth, a subset of the whole earth. We see two patrols going north, one going south, and then we zoom in even further, simply looking at the patrols that go north. The, the patrol to the south is no longer in view. Notice how they're dropping out. We had four horses, red drops out. Presumably he's staying in Jerusalem. We see three, two north, one south. Then the south drops out. Now we're just looking at the north. We're zooming in. We're zooming in as these chariots go and, and put the spirit of the living God at rest. What's their purpose? Three things. First, they enact God's sovereign rule over all the earth. They enact God's sovereign rule over all the earth. And we talk about God being sovereign. We talk about God being in control. But sometimes we can forget that God does it through means. He does it through orders. He does it through governance. It's not magical and mystical how it occurs. He's sending angels out. There's a spirit world that is real. And angelic messengers and angelic beings do his bidding and they come and they go. And here he is sending them out. He, he governs this world practically. And, and what's also interesting is what we know from history is the judgment that's coming to Babylon will be inflicted by the Assyrians by those who overtook them. Remember, the, the initial overtaking of Babylon by, by Cyrus was peaceful, history tells us, that when, when Cyrus stormed Babylon, the people largely welcomed him. It was relatively bloodless. And so in many senses, even though Babylon's already been overthrown, they haven't been disciplined. They haven't been punished. And, and God promised back in chapter 2, no, it, it was coming. It was coming. And history tells us that they start to resist and rebel and they get smashed a few years later. And yet this passage lets us know that whatever immediate means God uses, whatever immediate means take place, he stands behind all of it, right? Israel is told that whatever you hear the Assyrians do, no one understand. It was the agents, the angels, the messengers of the living God who brought this to pass. It gives us, it challenges us how we read the news, right? Because we believe God's sovereign, and then you read about some terrible thing. You, you see some of those ISIS videos, or hopefully you don't, but you hear about them. You say, God is sovereign. And you read about what's going on in the world, and you say, God is sovereign. And, and passages like this help us understand that, that God is aware, things are taking place, and he's sending his right, he is ruling his world. Ephesians 1.11 speaks of the God 
who is working all things according to the counsel of his will. He is sovereign, he rules, and he actively rules. He doesn't stand back passively. And that can challenge us because it can seem like they're waiting a long time. They're waiting a long time. God has announced the judgment of Babylon, and yet nothing seems to have happened. There appeared to be an anticlimax. The, the big point of this vision is it's begun. It's begun. God is in control. And if he delays, he has a reason to delay. So they enact God's sovereign rule over all the earth. Two, point B, the judgment previously announced has begun. And that's really, I think, the big point of this. As we get to the end, the final vision is the dawn is breaking and the, the mountains are lit up like bronze and we see four chariots coming out. This, all of this talk, all of this promise, all of this is coming, it's coming. It started. They're on the move. And I imagine the Israelites hearing this would, would get excited. It's starting. Now we've seen in this book that God ultimately has a plan for all the nations for all the world powers, which is why I think he's only singling out Babylon. The judgment of Babylon has begun. We're going to see as we study the rest of this book that the judgment of other nations is a long way down the pike. But this first judgment, this first horn is being cut down by the first craftsman, and it's underway. They're on the move. The judgment previously announced has begun. Go back to chapter 2. There's an expectation of, of this happening soon. Remember, in, in, the second in the third vision, in chapter 2, the vision of the man with the measuring line, the, the argument is this. Because of the prosperity coming to Jerusalem and because of the judgment coming to Babylon, get out of Babylon. Verse 6, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the border of Babylon. For thus this Lord of hosts, after his glory, sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them. And they'll become a plunder to those who serve them. Then you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me. The, the, the reasoning is get out of there. There's danger. Escape to Jerusalem. You don't want to stay in Babylon when, it gets, when things start to happen. And now in the eighth vision, things are starting to happen. By the way, do you see God's loving mercy in delaying the judgment of Babylon, giving his people more time to escape, more time to get out of there? See, God has reasons sometimes why he waits to act. The judgment previously announced has begun, but probably most significantly, the emphasis of this passage, the Lord's spirit is put to rest. And here we have a double, double entendre. I don't know how that would a double, double entendre. But however it works, there's two play on words going here. The first we've already seen is between spirit and spirit. These spirits, verse 8, behold, those who go to the north country, identified in, in verse 5 as the four spirits, these spirits have somehow put God's spirit at rest. That's, that's the first double entendre. The second reaches all the way back to chapter 1. So turn with me back. We're going back and forth here. It's just a page or two, though, so it'll be okay. What's the, what's the report these patrols give the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's armies? What, what report do they give? Verse 11. 
They answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees. Chapter 1, verse 11. We have patrolled the earth. Behold, all the earth remains at rest. So, the beginning situation, all the nations around Israel are peaceful. They're at rest. And you'd think, oh, that's good. Peace on earth. And yet what we read is this actually is what sets God's spirit at unrest. He becomes angry. It starts with the angel of the Lord being stirred up in his spirit. In verse 12, the angel of the Lord said, Oh, Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out! Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. So what we get in the first scene is a report of the rest, the peaceful rest of the nations around Israel is the very thing that stirs up the spirit of the angel of the Lord, the very thing that provokes the living God to anger. His spirit is not at rest precisely because they are. You get that? Okay, eighth vision, military might going up to the people at rest. With what effect? They've put his spirit at rest. You see that? It's a flip-flop around it. We start with Babylon and the nations around Israel. They're at rest. They're at peace. God is upset. God is exercised. God is, is the angel of the Lord is crying out, how God's angry. And so God does something about it. These, these angelic chariots go north. And again, I love the understatement. We're not even told what they do. I mean, you can imagine chariots don't have a whole lot of functions, right? Chariots exist as a military force. Judgment's announced in Babylon. Then God sends not one, but two war chariots up north. And we're left for us to figure out exactly how that happens, what's going to happen here. I don't think it's too hard to imagine. But whatever it is, now, God's spirit is at rest, presumably because they're now not at rest. The Lord's spirit is put to rest. And from that, we see two things. Two things. One, the Lord cares deeply about justice. The Lord cares deeply about justice. We live in a world we see injustice done constantly, and oftentimes it can look like the wicked get away with it. Oftentimes it looks like the bad guy wins. And we can find ourselves crying out with the angel of the Lord. I mean, you're in good company when you cry out. The psalmist cry, how long, O Lord? How long until you make things right? How long until the scales of justice balance? How long until the wrongs are righted? How long until the comeuppance of the wicked arrives? In Revelation, the, the disembodied souls of martyrs slain on earth cry out, how long, O Lord, until you vindicate our blood? God's spirit is not at rest. He cries out. The angel of the Lord cries out. The living God himself is not at peace and at rest until justice is done. If you think God's delaying of balancing the scales is due to apathy, guess again. Guess again. As long as judgment is delayed, there's a sense in which God's spirit is not at rest. You think that you're at unrest when you see evil in the world? The living God agrees. The angel of the Lord cries out. And therefore, keep in mind that if God delays in bringing justice, if God delays in bringing judgment, he has good 
reasons to do so. It is not because we somehow have a, a more loving heart or a more righteous heart than God. I mean, we can be tempted. We won't say that, will we? We won't actually say that. But in reality, we're tempted to think, if I were God, I would stop that. If I were God, I would not let that happen. God let it happen. Therefore, let's do the math. I'm somehow thinking that I'm better than God. It's okay to cry out, how long, God? I'd love to see this righted. We've got to make sure we don't take that next step. But God's got a good reason. We've seen one already, which is to give Israel more time to get out of there. To get out of there. But he doesn't need to give us his reasons. Just know that his heart longs for justice too. That his spirit is not at rest. I love that. His spirit is not at rest until judgment is dealt out. These patrols go north. They do whatever they do. God's spirit's at rest in the north. There's still plenty more injustice in the land. The angels have gone towards the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. As far as north country goes, God's at peace now. There's still plenty of wickedness in the world that needs to be judged. And so we, we are challenged to be patient. Know that the God who saved you, the God who redeems you, the God who rules this universe cares deeply about injustice in the world, and he has good reasons if he delays. He has good reasons. He's not apathetic. He cares. He cares more than you do. Secondly, God cares deeply about his people. God cares deeply about his people. And I'm just, just going to look through some of Zechariah here. Turn, turn back to chapter 1. I want you to see this. God cares deeply about his people. His people come back. I mean, God has just done so much for his people, right? He, he, he turns the heart of Cyrus and has them go sent back to the land, sent back with money and building resources. And these people, most of them don't come. And when they do arrive, they start sort of half-heartedly building and then they give up. And God cares for his people. And he sends Haggai to call them to repentance. And he sends Zechariah to call them to repentance. He says, return to me. I will return to you. Because we talked at the beginning of this study, God is not going to bless. He's not going to prosper the rebellious people. So the most loving, immediate thing he can do is call his people to repentance. And you know, we, we may not always understand that, but if someone's calling you to repentance, it's a loving thing they are doing. If you love your brother or sister enough to speak to them and call them to repentance, you're, putting, you're calling them to a position that God can bless. You're calling them to walk in the light. You're calling them to get out from under God's hand of discipline. That, that is a kindness. That's how God starts. And the people repent. And then God has kind and gracious things. Look at the first vision. We've seen it already. Let's look at it again. God's heart and his love for his people. It starts with the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, said, verse 12, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? So Jesus loves his people. Jesus intercedes on their behalf before the throne of God above, crying out for his people he loves. And the, the Lord, verse 13, answered gracious and comforting words. And the angel who talked with me said, 
um, the angel who talked to me. So the angel who talked to me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. Because he loves his people, he's angry at those who mistreat them. I'm extremely angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. The measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Look over at chapter 2. That, that beautiful word picture started in Deuteronomy 32, picked up in Psalm 17, but here in verse 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Now we know what it's like to wear protective goggles because we protect our eyes because they are dear to us. And you've had the experience of something getting caught in your eye and how uncomfortable that is or someone poking you in the eye. The living God says, I am so zealous and I care so much for my people that for someone to attack them, for someone to mistreat them, it's as though they're poking me in the eye with a stick. We are loved. We are beloved in him. And then he redeems us, chapter 3. He's removed the sins. Joshua standing in for the people. And ultimately a picture of what he's done for every one of us. He doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't act. The accuser is silenced. The angel of the Lord takes charge of the courtroom. And in verse 4, we read, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. Verse 8, I mean verse 9, I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. God cares for his people. He loves his people. Look a little ahead in the book. A little further in the book, chapter 8. We'll get to in the new year. We're pausing. December, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're, we're take a pause from Zechariah in December. So, um, we covered six chapters in 11 messages. I think that's not bad. Um, chapter 8. The word of the Lord of hosts came saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of great age and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the street. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, shall it also be marvelous in the sight, my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. And he just goes on for the rest of the book, his love, his passion for his people. God's spirit was not at rest. And back at chapter 6, bringing this to a close, God's spirit was not at rest while his people were not at rest. God's spirit was not at rest while they were being oppressed and while their enemies were at ease. And so God has declared to take measures, to act in human history, so as to give his spirit rest 
by giving his people rest, by giving tribulation to those who tribulate them. So as you suffer in this world, and we're facing more and more persecution, more and more mistreatment, it's becoming harder and harder to be a Christian in this world. Know that even as you experience dis-ease and discomfort, the Spirit of the living God experiences the same for you. And if His deliverance delays, if He does not show up immediately and vindicate you, if He does not show up with His mighty armies and fight for you in that moment, He will. He will in His time. And I just encourage you that the living Christ can await His Father's timetable to be vindicated, that we should be content to do the same. He cares. He's aware. Things are in motion. Things are in motion. Rights will make up for the wrongs. The scales will be balanced. God cares. He is at work. And, and the point of this message, this final vision, the point of these eight visions, God cares. He's returned. He's acting. Be encouraged. For we are greatly, greatly loved. Let's, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your zeal, for your people. We thank you that you care. You care about justice. You care about your, your bride. You care about your people and their suffering. And that you not just care, but that you have acted. You have gone to such great lengths to give us rest, to give us peace. You've sent your son. You will send him again to come for us. And so, Lord, with that knowledge, we, we rest with great hope and joy, even as we experience tribulation in this world. We are greatly encouraged, and we look to you. And we say with Paul, come swiftly, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name, amen.